Chapter Thirty One of the Portrait of a Lady, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nikki Sullivan. The Portrait of a Lady, Volume Two, by Henry James. Chapter Thirty One. Isabel came back to Florence, but only after several months, an interval sufficiently replete with incident. It is not, however, during this interval that we are closely concerned with her. Our attention is engaged again on a certain day in the late springtime, shortly after her return to the Plazo Crescentini, and a year from the date of the incidents just narrated. She was alone on this occasion, in one of the smaller of the numerous rooms devoted by Mrs. Touchette to social uses, and there was that in her expression and attitude which would have suggested that she was expecting a visitor. The tall window was open, and though its green shutters were partially drawn, the bright air of the garden had come in through a broad interstice and filled the room with warmth and perfume. Our young woman stood near it for some time, her hands clasped behind her. She gazed abroad with the vagueness of unrest. Too troubled for attention, she moved in a vain circle. Yet it could not be in her thought to catch a glimpse of her visitor before he should pass into the house, since the entrance to the palace was not through the garden, in which stillness and privacy always reigned. She wished rather to forestall his arrival, by a process of conjecture, and to judge by the expression of her face, this attempt gave her plenty to do. Grave, she found herself, and positively more weighted, as by the experience of the lapse of the year she had spent in seeing the world. She had ranged, she would have said, through space, and surveyed much of mankind, and was therefore now, in her own eyes, a very different person from the frivolous young woman from Albany who had begun to take the measure of Europe on the lawn at Garden Court a couple of years before. She flattered herself that she had harvested wisdom and learned a great deal more of life than the light-minded creature had ever suspected. If her thoughts just now had inclined themselves to retrospect, instead of fluttering their wings nervously about the present, they would have evoked a multitude of interesting pictures these pictures would have been both landscapes and figure pieces the latter however would have been more numerous with several of the images that might have been projected on such a field we are already acquainted there would have been for instance the conciliatory lily our heroine's sister and edmund ludlow's wife who had come out from new york to spend five months with her relative she had left her husband behind her but had brought her children, to whom Isabel now played with equal munificence and tenderness, the part of maiden aunt. Mr. Ludlow, towards the last, had been able to snatch a few weeks from his forensic triumphs, and, crossing the ocean with extreme rapidity, had spent a month or two with the ladies in Paris before taking his wife home. The little Ludlows had not yet, even from the American point of view, reached the proper tourist age, so that while her sister was with her, Elizabeth had confined her movements to a narrow circle. Lily and the babies had joined her in Switzerland in the month of July, and they had spent a summer of fine weather in an alpine valley where the flowers were thick in the meadows, and the shade of great chestnuts made a resting place for such upward wanderings as might be undertaken by ladies and children on warm afternoons. They had afterwards reached the French capital, which was worshipped, and with costly ceremonies, by Lily, but thought of as noisily vacant by Isabel, who in these days made use of her memory of Rome, as she might have done in a hot and crowded room of a vial of something pungent hidden in her handkerchief. Mrs. Ludlow sacrificed, as I say, to Paris. 
yet had doubts and wonderments not allayed at that altar, and after her husband had joined her, found further chagrin in his failure to throw himself into these speculations. They had all Isabel for subject, but Edmund Ludlow, as he had always done before, declined to be surprised, or distressed, or mystified, or elated, at anything his sister-in-law might have done, or failed to do. Mrs. Ludlow's mental motions were sufficiently various. At one moment she thought it would be so natural for that young woman to come home and take a house in New York, at the Rossiters, for instance, which had an elegant conservatory and was just round the corner from her own. At another, she couldn't conceal her surprise that the girl's not marrying some member of one of the great aristocracies. On the whole, as I have said, she had fallen from high communion with the probabilities. She had taken more satisfaction in Isabel's accession of fortune than if the money had been left to herself. It had seemed to her to offer just the proper setting for her sister's slightly meagre, but scarcely less eminent, figure. Isabel had developed less, however, than Lily had thought likely development. To Lily's understanding, being somehow mysteriously connected with morning calls and evening parties. Intellectually, doubtless, she had made immense strides, but she appeared to have achieved few of those social conquests which Mrs. Ludlow has expected to admire the trophies. Lily's conception of such achievements was extremely vague, but this is exactly what she had expected of Isabel, to give it form and body. Isabel could have done as well as she had done in New York. Mrs. Ludlow appealed to her husband to know whether there was any privilege she enjoyed in Europe which society of that city might not offer her. We know ourselves that Isabel had made conquests, whether inferior or not, to those she might have effected in her native land, it would be a delicate matter to decide. And it is not altogether with a feeling of complacency that I again mention that she had not rendered these honorable victories public. She had not told her sister the history of Lord Warburton, nor had she given a hint of Mr. Osmond's state of mind, and she had no better reason of for her silence than that she didn't wish to speak. It was more romantic to say nothing, and, drinking deep, in secret, of romance, she was as little disposed to ask poor Lily's advice than she would have been to close that rare volume forever. But Lily knew nothing of these discriminations, and could only pronounce her sister's career a strange anticlimax, an impression confirmed by the fact that Isabel's silence about Mr. Osmond, for instance, was in direct proportion to the frequency with which he occupied her thoughts. As this happened very often, it sometimes appeared to Mrs. Ludlow that she had lost her courage. So uncanny a result of so exhilarating an incident as inheriting a fortune was, of course, perplexing to the cheerful Lily. It added to her general sense that Isabel was not at all like other people. Isabel's gaiety, however, superficially speaking at least, exhibited itself rather more after her sister had gone home. She could imagine something more poetic than spending the winter in Paris. Paris was like smart, neat prose, and her frequent correspondence with Madame Merle did much to stimulate such fancies. She had never had a keener sense of freedom, of the absolute boldness and wantonness of liberty, than when she had turned away from the platform at Euston Station on one of the latter days of November, after the departure of the train which was to convey poor Lily, her husband, and her children to their ship at Liverpool. It had been good for her to have them with her. She was very conscious of that, 
She was very observant, as we know, of what was good for her, in her effort to constantly find something that was good enough. To profit by the present advantage till the latest moment, she had made the journey from Paris with the unenvied travellers. She would have accompanied them to Liverpool as well, only Edmund Ludlow had asked her, as a favour, not to do so. It made Lily so fidgety, and she asked such impossible questions. Isabel watched the train move away. She kissed her hand to the elder of her small nephews, the demonstrative child who leaned dangerously far out the window of the carriage and made a separation an occasion of violent hilarity, and then she walked back into the foggy London street. The world lay before her. She could do whatever she chose. There was something exciting in the feeling, but for the present her choice was tolerably discreet. She chose simply to walk back from Euston Square to her hotel. The early dusk of a November afternoon had already closed in. The street lamps in the thick brown air looked weak and red. Our young lady was unattended, and Euston Square was a long way from Piccadilly. But Isabel performed the journey with a positive enjoyment of its dangers, and lost her way almost on purpose, in order to get more sensations, so that she was disappointed when an obliging policeman easily set her right again. She was so fond of the spectacle of human life that she enjoyed even the aspect of gathering dusk in the London streets, the moving crowds, the hurrying cabs, the lighted shops, the flaring stalls, the dark, shining dampness of everything. That evening, in her hotel, she wrote to Madame Merle that she would start in a day or two for Rome. She made her way down to Rome without touching at Florence having gone first to Venice and then proceeding southward by Ancona. She accomplished this journey without other assistance than that of her servant, for her natural protectors were not now on the ground. Ralph Touchette was spending the winter at Corfu, and Mrs. Stackpole, in the September previous, had been recalled to America by a telegram from the interviewer. This journal offered its brilliant correspondent a fresher field for her talents than the mouldering cities of Europe, and Henrietta was cheered on her way by a promise from Mr. Bantling that he would soon come over and see her. Isabel wrote to Mrs. Chichette to apologize for not coming just then to Florence, and her aunt replied characteristically enough. Apologies, Mrs. Chichette intimated, were of no more use than soap bubbles, and she herself never dealt in such articles. One either did the thing, or one didn't and what one would have done belonged to a sphere of the irrelevant, like the idea of a future life or the origin of things. Her letter was frank, but, a rare case with Mrs. Truchette, it was not so frank as it seemed. She easily forgave her niece for not stopping at Florence, because she thought that it was a sign that there was nothing going on with Gilbert Osmond. She watched, of course, to see whether Mr. Osmond would now go to Rome, and took some comfort in learning that he was not guilty of an absence. Isabel, on her side, had not been a fortnight in Rome before she proposed to Madame Merle that they should take a little pilgrimage to the east. Madame Merle remarked that her friend was restless, but she added that she herself had always been consumed with a desire to visit Athens and Constantinople. The two ladies, accordingly, embarked on this expedition and spent three months in Greece, in Turkey, in Egypt. 
Isabel found much to interest her in these countries, though Madame Merle continued to remark that even among the most classic sights, the scenes most calculated to suggest repose and reflection, her restlessness prevailed. Isabel traveled rapidly, eagerly, audaciously. She was like a thirsty person draining cup after cup. Madame Merle, for the present, was a most efficient duana. It was on Isabel's invitation she had come, and she imparted all necessary dignity to the girl's uncountenanced condition. She played her part with a sagacity that might have been expected of her. She effaced herself, she accepted the position of a companion whose expenses were profusely paid. The situation, however, had no hardships, and people who met this graceful pair on the travels would not have been able to tell you which was the patroness and which was the client. To say that Madame Merle improved on acquaintance would misrepresent the impression she made upon Isabel, who had thought her from the first a perfectly enlightened woman. At the end of an intimacy of three months, Isabel felt that she knew her better, her character had revealed itself, and Madame Merle had also, at last, redeemed her promise of relating her history from her own point of view, a consummation the more desirable, as Isabel had already heard it related from the point of view of others. This history was so sad a one, in so far as it concerned the late M. Merle, an adventurer in the lowest class, who had taken advantage years before of her youth and of her inexperience, in which those who knew her only now would find it difficult to believe. It abounded so in startling and lamentable incidents that Isabel wondered the poor lady had kept so much of her freshness, her interest in life. Into this freshness of Madame Merle she obtained a considerable insight. She saw that it was, after all, a tolerably artificial bloom. Isabel liked her as much as ever, but there was a certain corner of the curtain that was never lifted. It was as if Madame Merle had remained, after all, a foreigner. She believed, then, that at the bottom she had a very different morality. Of course the morality of civilized persons had always much in common, but our young woman had a sense in her of values gone wrong, or as they said in the shops, marked down. She considered, with a presumption of youth, that a morality differing from her own must be inferior to it, and this conviction was an aid to detecting an occasional flash of cruelty, an occasional lapse from candor, in the conversation of a person who had raised delicate kindness to an art, and whose pride was too high for the narrow ways of deception. Her conception of human motives might, in certain lights, have been acquired at the court of some kingdom of indecadence, and there were several in her list of which our heroine had not even heard. She had not heard of everything, that was very plain, and there were evidently things in the world of which it was not advantageous to hear. She had once or twice had a positive scare, since it so affected her to have to exclaim of her friend, Heaven forgive me! She doesn't understand me. Absurd it may seem, this discovery operated as a shock, left to her with a vague dismay in which there was even an element of foreboding. The dismay, of course, subsided, in light of some sudden proof of Madame Merle's remarkable intelligence, but it stood for a high-water mark in the ebb and flow of confidence. Madame Merle had once declared her belief that when a friendship ceases to grow it immediately begins to decline, there being no point of equilibrium between liking more and liking less. A stationary affection, in other words, was impossible. It must move one way or the other. However that might be, 
the girl had in these days a thousand uses for her sense of the romantic, which was more active than it had ever been. I do not allude to the impulse it received as she gazed at the pyramids in the course of an excursion from Cairo, or as she stood among the broken columns at the Acropolis, or fixed her eyes upon the point designated to her as the Strait of Salamis, deep and memorable as these emotions had remained. She came back by the last of March from Egypt and Greece, and made another stay in Rome. A few days after her arrival, Gilbert Osmond descended from Florence and remained three weeks, during which the fact of her being with his old friend Madame Merle, in whose house she had gone to lodge, made it virtually inevitable that he should see her every day. When the last of April came, she wrote to Mrs. Touchette that she would now rejoice to accept an invitation given long before, and went to pay a visit at Palazzo Crescentini, Madame Merle on this occasion remaining in Rome. She found her aunt alone. Her cousin was still at Corfu. Ralph, however, was expected in Florence from day to day, and Isabel, who had not seen him for upwards of a year, was prepared to give him the most affectionate welcome. End of chapter 31 Recording by Nikki Sullivan, Chicago